For those new to the podcast, welcome to where members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints feel like they connect with and enjoy the scriptures within minutes. We do this verse by verse, with the help from modern witnesses of Jesus Christ, giving deep, powerful, and engaging insights to what we are reading. Also, helping us see how ancient scriptures very much apply to us in the modern day. Feel free to follow this podcast to stay up to date and share it with anyone who you think would enjoy it. Right now, we are gaining insight on the Book of Mormon. My style is to always read the verse or verses first to give us context, and then let those verses really flourish in your minds by accompanying them with insights directly after. This way, we get a healthy dose of scriptures with our commentary. I invite you to listen to the scriptures being read intently before the insights and see if you can find what the topic will be. I also invite you to write down anything you needed to hear today and feel free to share it with the community using the hashtag AllInChristDaily. So, 1 Nephi 11, 16, and 26 states for us, And he said unto me, Knowest thou the condescension of God? And the angel said unto me again, Look and behold the condescension of God. Condescension means a voluntary descent from rank or dignity. Elder Gerald N. Lund, formerly of the Seventy, commented on how well this word describes the coming of the Savior into mortality. Here was Jesus, a member of the Godhead, the firstborn of the Father, the Creator, Jehovah of the Old Testament. Now leaving his divine and holy station, divesting himself of all that glory and majesty, and entering the body of a tiny infant, helpless, completely dependent on his mother and earthly father, that he should not come to the finest of earthly palaces and be showered with jewels, but should come to a lowly stable is astonishing. Little wonder that the angel should say to Nephi, Behold the condescension of God. President Boyd K. Packer spoke of Heavenly Father's desire to give us the righteous desires of our hearts. No message appears in Scripture more times, in more ways than ask, and ye shall receive. Nephi applied the invitation to ask for the things that his father had seen, and believing that the Lord was able to make them known. Nephi's righteous desires were rewarded, for he not only recorded information that was similar to what we have recorded about Lehi's vision, but he recorded a panoramic vision of this world to the end of time. This vision was similar to the vision of John in the New Testament book of Revelation. As we study Nephi's vision, look for specific prophecies that have been or will be fulfilled in the events of history. Especially important are the effects of the apostasy, the eventual restoration of the gospel, and the ultimate triumph of good. First, Nephi 12.11 states for us, And the angel said unto me, Look! And I looked, and beheld three generations pass away in righteousness. And their garments were white, even like unto the Lamb of God. And the angel said unto me, These are made white in the blood of the Lamb because of their faith in him. White is a symbol for cleanliness, righteousness, and holiness. Being completely clean is necessary to be like the Savior. To have white garments symbolizes that a person is clothed in purity, or that purity is a characteristic of that individual. Such cleanliness is made possible only through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in which his blood was shed for our sins. President John Taylor spoke of the necessity of going beyond, simply being members of the Lord's Church, if we are to be sufficiently worthy to stand before our Father in heaven. There is something that goes a little further than we think about sometimes. And that is, while we profess to be followers of the Lord, while we profess to have received the gospel and to be governed by it, a profession will amount to nothing unless we have washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb.
It is not enough for us to be connected with the Zion of God. For the Zion of God must consist of men that are pure in heart and pure in life and spotless before God. At least that is what we have got to arrive at. We are not there yet, but we must get there before we shall be prepared to inherit glory and exaltation. Therefore, a form of godliness will amount to but little with any of us. It is not enough for us to embrace the gospel and be associated with the people of God, attend our meetings and partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and endeavor to move along without much blame of any kind attached to us. For notwithstanding all this, if our hearts are not right, if we are not pure in heart before God, if we have not pure hearts and pure consciences, fearing God and keeping His commandments, we shall not, unless we repent, participate in these blessings about which I have spoken, and of which the prophets bear testimony. 1 Nephi 13, 1-9 states for us, And it came to pass that the angel spake unto me, saying, Look! And I looked and beheld many nations and kingdoms. And the angel said unto me, What beholdest thou? And I said, I behold many nations and kingdoms. And he said unto me, These are the nations and kingdoms of the Gentiles. And it came to pass that I saw among the nations of the Gentiles the formation of a great church. And the angel said unto me, Behold the formation of a church which is most abominable above all other churches, which slayeth the saints of God. Yea, and tortureth them, and bendeth them down, and yoketh them with a yoke of iron, and bringeth them down into captivity. And it came to pass that I beheld this great and abominable church, and I saw the devil that he was the founder of it. And I also saw gold, and silver, and silks, and scarlets, and fine twined linen, and all manner of precious clothing. And I saw many harlots. And the angel spake unto me, saying, Behold the gold and the silver, and the silks and the scarlets, and the fine twined linen, and the precious clothing, and the harlots, are the desires of this great and abominable church. And also for the praise of the world do they destroy the saints of God, and bring them down into captivity. In relation to the kingdom of God, the devil always sets up his kingdom at the very same time in opposition to God. Elder Bruce R. McConkie of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles defined the Great and Abominable Church. The titles Church of the Devil and Great and Abominable Church are used to identify all organizations of whatever name or nature, whether political, philosophical, educational, economic, social, fraternal, civic, or religious, which are designed to take men on a course that leads away from God and His laws, and thus from salvation in the kingdom of God. One commentator explained that the great and abominable church consists of more than one entity. Actually, no single known historical church, denomination, or set of believers meets all the requirements for the great and abominable church. It must have formed among the Gentiles. It must have edited and controlled the distribution of the scriptures. It must have slain the saints of God, including the apostles and prophets. It must be in league with civil governments and use their police power to enforce its religious views. It must have dominion over all the earth. It must pursue great wealth and sexual immorality. And it must last until close to the end of the world. No single denomination or system of beliefs fits the entire description. Rather, the role of Babylon has been played by many different agencies, ideologies, and churches, in many different times. Can we then identify the historical agency that acted as the great and abominable church in earliest Christianity?
such an agent would have had its origins in the second half of the first century and would have done much of its work by the middle of the second century. This period might be called the blind spot in Christian history, for it is here that the fewest primary historical sources have been preserved. We have good sources for New Testament Christianity, then the lights go out, so to speak, and we hear the muffled sounds of a great struggle. When the lights come on again a hundred or so years later, we find that someone has rearranged all the furniture and Christianity has become something very different from what it was in the beginning. 1 Nephi 13.12 states for us, And I looked and beheld a man among the Gentiles, who was separated from the seed of my brethren by the many waters. And I beheld the Spirit of God, that it came down and wrought upon the man. And he went forth upon the many waters, even unto the seed of my brethren, who were in the promised land. President Ezra Taft Benson identified this man among the Gentiles as Christopher Columbus. God inspired a man among the Gentiles, who, by the Spirit of God, was led to rediscover the land of America and bring this rich new land to the attention of the people in Europe. That man, of course, was Christopher Columbus, who testified that he was inspired in what he did. Our Lord, said Columbus, unlocked my mind, sent me upon the sea, and gave me fire for the deed. Those who heard of my enterprise called it foolish, mocked me, and laughed. But who can doubt but that the Holy Ghost inspired me? President Gordon B. Hinckley revered Columbus as being inspired of the Lord. A host of critics have spoken out against Christopher Columbus. I do not dispute that there were others who came to this Western Hemisphere before him. But it was he who in faith lighted a lamp to look for a new way to China, and who in the process discovered America. His was an awesome undertaking. To sail west across the unknown seas farther than any before him of his generation. He it was who, in spite of the terror of the unknown and the complaints and near mutiny of his crew, sailed on with frequent prayers to the Almighty for guidance. In his reports to the sovereigns of Spain, Columbus repeatedly asserted that his voyage was for the glory of God and the spread of the Christian faith. Properly do we honor him for his unyielding strength in the face of uncertainty and danger. First, Nephi 13, 12 through 19 states for us. And I looked and beheld a man among the Gentiles, who was separated from the seed of my brethren by the many waters. And I beheld the Spirit of God, that it came down and wrought upon the man. And he went forth upon the many waters, even unto the seed of my brethren, who were in the promised land. And it came to pass that I beheld the Spirit of God, that it wrought upon other Gentiles. And they went forth out of captivity upon the many waters, and it came to pass that I beheld many multitudes of the Gentiles upon the land of promise, and I beheld the wrath of God, that it was upon the seed of my brethren, and they were scattered before the Gentiles, and were smitten. And I beheld the Spirit of the Lord, that it was upon the Gentiles, and they did prosper, and obtain the land for their inheritance. And I beheld that they were white, and exceedingly fair and beautiful, like unto my people before they were slain. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles who had gone forth out of captivity did humble themselves before the Lord, and the power of the Lord was with them. And I beheld that their mother Gentiles were gathered together upon the waters, and upon the land also, to battle against them. And I beheld that the power of God was with them, and also that the wrath of God was upon all those that were gathered together against them, to battle. And I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles that had gone out of captivity were delivered by the power of God 
out of the hands of all other nations. President Joseph F. Smith linked the establishment of the United States of America with the restoration of the gospel. This great American nation, the Almighty raised up by the power of his omnipotent hand, that it might be possible in the latter days for the kingdom of God to be established in the earth. If the Lord had not prepared the way, by laying the foundations of this glorious nation, it would have been impossible, under the stringent laws and bigotry of the monarchical governments of the world, to have laid the foundations for the coming of his great kingdom. The Lord has done this. Elder Robert D. Hales of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles spoke of how God inspired the founders of America to establish a new nation with religious freedom for all in preparation for the restoration of the gospel. Over a century later, after the discovery of America, such religious feeling guided founders of a new nation on the American continent. Under God's hand, they secured religious freedom for every citizen with an inspired Bill of Rights. Fourteen years later, on December 23, 1805, the prophet Joseph Smith was born. The preparation was nearing its completion for the restoration. First Nephi 3, 20-29 states for us, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld that they did prosper in the land. And I beheld a book, and it was carried forth among them. And the angel said unto me, Knowest thou the meaning of the book? And I said unto him, I know not. And he said, Behold, it proceedeth out of the mouth of a Jew. And I, Nephi, beheld it. And he said unto me, The book that thou beholdest is a record of the Jews, which contains the covenants of the Lord, which he hath made unto the house of Israel. And it also containeth many of the prophecies of the holy prophets. And it is a record like unto the engravings which are upon the plates of brass. Save there are not so many, nevertheless, they contain the covenants of the Lord, which he hath made unto the house of Israel. Wherefore, they are of great worth unto the Gentiles. And the angel of the Lord said unto me, Thou hast beheld that the book proceeded forth from the mouth of a Jew. And when it proceeded forth from the mouth of a Jew, it contained the fullness of the gospel of the Lord, of whom the twelve apostles bear record. And they bear record according to the truth, which is in the Lamb of God. Wherefore, these things go forth from the Jews in purity unto the Gentiles, according to the truth, which is in God. And after they go forth by the hand of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, from the Jews unto the Gentiles, thou seest the formation of that great and abominable church, which is most abominable above all other churches. For behold, they have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts, which are plain and most precious. And also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. And all this have they done that they might pervert the right ways of the Lord, that they might blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men. Wherefore, thou seest that after the book hath gone forth through the hands of the great and abominable church, that there are many plain and precious things taken away from the book, which is the book of the Lamb of God. And after these plain and precious things were taken away, it goeth forth unto all the nations of the Gentiles. And after it goeth forth unto all the nations of the Gentiles. Yea, even across the many waters which thou hast seen with the Gentiles, which have gone forth out of captivity, thou seest. Because of the many plain and precious things which have been taken out of the book, which were plain unto the understanding of the children of men, according to the plainness which is in the Lamb of God. Because of these things which are taken away out of the gospel of the Lamb, an exceedingly great many do stumble. Yea, insomuch that Satan hath great power over them. 
Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained the meaning of plain and precious. Elements missing from the Bible were both plain and most precious. They were plain in their simplicity and clarity. Being easy to the understanding of men, they were precious in their purity and profound worth. Their saving significance and eternal importance to the children of God. One educator suggested the following explanation for changes in the scriptures. Apparently, the original manuscripts of the Bible disappeared very early. This seems particularly true of the New Testament. Sir Frederick Kenyon, one of the greatest textual scholars of the early 20th century, commented thus, the originals of the several books have long ago disappeared. They must have perished in the very infancy of the church, for no allusion is ever made to them by any Christian writer. Kenyon's statement is particularly important to us because it means that for centuries, there has not been an original Bible manuscript to guide the reader. Even in the early decades of the original Christian church, the original texts seem to have been absent. The angel makes it clear that he is not talking about subtle accidents of hand and eye, resulting in a few misplaced letters or words. The unplanned errors of copyists. He pointedly ascribes these changes to the planned editorial work of designing men. As we read the words of the angel, we discover that the world never has had a complete Bible, for it was massively, even cataclysmically, corrupted before it was distributed. Of course, in addition to the major willful corruption of the Bible in the early Christian era, the manuscripts have also continued to suffer the gradual and relatively mild changes, due to errors of hand and eye, that the scholars talk about. Thus, there have been two processes at work. One, a major, sudden, and deliberate editorial corruption of the text, and two, a gradual promulgation of variants that has occurred as a natural consequence of copying and translation. Joseph Smith taught that many important points touching the salvation of man had been taken from the Bible or lost before it was compiled. He also said that the Bible was correct as it came from the pen of the original writers, but that ignorant translators, careless transcribers, or designing and corrupt priests have committed many errors. First, Nephi 13, 32 through 40 states for us, Neither will the Lord God suffer that the Gentiles shall forever remain in that awful state of blindness, which thou beholdest they are in, because of the plain and most precious parts of the gospel of the Lamb which have been kept back by that abominable church whose formation thou hast seen. Wherefore saith the Lamb of God, I will be merciful unto the Gentiles, unto the visiting of the remnant of the house of Israel in great judgment. And it came to pass that the angel of the Lord spake unto me, saying, Behold, saith the Lamb of God, after I have visited the remnant of the house of Israel, and this remnant of whom I speak is the seed of thy father. Wherefore, after I have visited them in judgment, and smitten them by the hand of the Gentiles, and after the Gentiles do stumble exceedingly, because of the most plain and precious parts of the gospel of the Lamb, which have been kept back by that abominable church, which is the mother of harlots, saith the Lamb, I will be merciful unto the Gentiles in that day, insomuch that I will bring forth unto them, in mine own power, much of my gospel, which shall be plain and precious, saith the Lamb. For behold, saith the Lamb, I will manifest myself unto thy seed, that they shall write many things which I shall minister unto them, which shall be plain and precious. And after thy seed shall be destroyed and dwindle in unbelief, and also the seed of thy brethren, behold, these things shall be hid up, 
to come forth unto the Gentiles by the gift and power of the Lamb. And in them shall be written my gospel, saith the Lamb, and my rock, and my salvation. And blessed are they who shall seek to bring forth my Zion at that day, for they shall have the gift and the power of the Holy Ghost. And if they endure unto the end, they shall be lifted up at the last day, and shall be saved in the everlasting kingdom of the Lamb. And whoso shall publish peace, yea, tidings of great joy, how beautiful upon the mountains shall they be! And it came to pass that I beheld the remnant of the seed of my brethren, and also the book of the Lamb of God, which had proceeded forth from the mouth of the Jew, that it came forth from the Gentiles unto the remnant of the seed of my brethren. And after it had come forth unto them, I beheld other books, which came forth by the power of the Lamb, from the Gentiles unto them, unto the convincing of the Gentiles and the remnant of the seed of my brethren, and also the Jews who were scattered upon all the face of the earth, that the records of the prophets and of the twelve apostles of the Lamb are true. And the angel spake unto me, saying, These last records, which thou hast seen among the Gentiles, shall establish the truth of the first, which are of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, and shall make known the plain and precious things which have been taken away from them, and shall make known to all kindreds, tongues, and people, that the Lamb of God is the Son of the Eternal Father, and the Savior of the world, and that all men must come unto him, or they cannot be saved. President James E. Faust of the First Presidency spoke of how the standard works of the Church have been the principal means of restoring lost truths. The Apostle John saw in vision the time when an angel would come to the earth as part of the restoration of the Gospel. That angel was Moroni, who appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith. He directed Joseph to the place where golden plates containing ancient writings were deposited. Joseph Smith then translated these plates by the gift and power of God, and the Book of Mormon was published. This is a record of two groups of people who lived centuries ago on the American continent. Little was known about them before the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. But more importantly, the Book of Mormon is another testament of Christ. It restored precious truths concerning the fall, the atonement, the resurrection, and life after death. Prior to the Restoration, the heavens had been closed for centuries. But with prophets and apostles upon the earth once more, the heavens were opened once again with visions and revelations. Many of the revelations that came to the prophet Joseph Smith were written down in a book that came to be known as the Doctrine and Covenants. This contains further insights about principles and ordinances and is a valuable source concerning the structure of the priesthood. In addition, we have another canon of scripture called the Pearl of Great Price. It contains the Book of Moses, which came by revelation to the prophet Joseph Smith, and the Book of Abraham, which he translated from a purchased Egyptian scroll. From these we learn not only a great deal more about Moses, Abraham, Enoch, and other prophets, but also many more details about the creation. We learn that the Gospel of Jesus Christ was taught to all of the prophets from the beginning, even from the time of Adam. The Joseph Smith translation of the Bible also helps restore many plain and precious truths. The Joseph Smith translation is a revision or translation of the King James Version of the Bible in English, which the prophet Joseph Smith began in June 1830. He was commanded by God to make the translation and regarded it as part of his calling as a prophet. The Joseph Smith translation has restored some of the plain and precious things that have been lost from the Bible. Although it is not the official Bible of the Church, this translation does offer many interesting insights, 
and is very valuable in understanding the Bible. It is also a witness for the divine calling and ministry of the prophet Joseph Smith. With continuing revelation in the Lord's Church, the process of bringing the plain and precious doctrines and principles of the gospel to people throughout the world is an ongoing process. The conference reports and other inspired writings from the Lord's apostles and prophets are vital for gospel understanding of the plain and precious truths.